Welcome to the Conscious Clinician Podcast. We have honest conversations about the triumphs and challenges of pelvic health physical therapy. Each week, we bring you inspiration and practical tips to thrive in your work. And now, here's your hosts, Dr. Monica Stefanovich and Dr. Sammy Steele. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, we've got Mike Nelson on. He is a clinical director at Agile Physical Therapy and a part-time professor of orthopedics at the UCSF SFSU DPT program. He is also an adjunct faculty member in the Agile Orthopedic Residency and helps with research and education for PhysioTree. He is passionate about helping bridge the gap between evidence-based medicine and clinical practice. Mike, it's so good to have you on. Welcome. It's so good to be here. Thanks for having me. Mike, can you tell us a little bit more about what you do, what you're currently working on? Sure. As part of my primary day job is this clinical director job with Agile, and I'm a clinical director for the enterprise division, which means that overseeing contracts with external companies, and for us, that includes Google and Genentech. Working on that is my primary job, but then, as Monica mentioned, really passionate about teaching and spending time with first-year DPT students in their orthopedic curriculum. I do a lot of that more in the fall than in the spring, so it's a little bit lighter for me right now, but those are my main two outputs. So you got your hands on a lot of pies. Yes, jack of a few trades and master of none. That's for sure. <laughs> Hardly well, would agree with yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> Don't let Mike's humility fool you. He is excellent at discussing several topics we're going to get into, things we're really passionate about on the podcast. I will leave the spoilers out. But Mike, we're curious Tell us more about PhysioTree. What is that project like? What does that involve? Yeah, so PhysioTree is an app and a program, a web-based program, but now turning into an app that was developed by a few people at Agile. It's designed to be first-line, non-human-based care for low back pain. So it's designed to risk stratify, triage, and provide early intervention. And as we've seen, a lot of these early interventions for back pain, especially in-person interventions with primary care, are non-concordant with what we'd expect from best practice. So it's basically just how do we reach as many people as possible, give them quick info, and then get them to where they need to be. And that's kind of what it was designed to do. So I wasn't there when the app started, but they brought me on to do a more patient education-centered stuff and to help with part of the risk stratification. And we're in the app development process right now. So the full Silicon Valley thing. It's been really interesting over the last nine, 10 months to do that. As I said, we all have day jobs, so it's not going very fast, but we're excited to get there eventually. Yeah. I think it's cool to have an app like this where we can direct people sooner to the right things because there's so much fear around low back pain. Having somebody who is educating patients on best practice and directing them to where they need to go and sounds like probably providing some reassurance is really huge, especially in the world of Dr. Google and all these scary things that you read online. Sounds like a cool project. I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah, I'm excited to see the final product. The The website that I linked to you guys is the outdated version, but that's going to be the URL. That's going to be the name. So hopefully that gets updated with a little more <laughs> fancier <laughs> and nicer looking material soon. But yeah, I'm excited too. And we know that when people can get care faster, it's better. And we know that if they can get the right care, it's better. So it seems like a nice way to reach as many people as possible and still provide good quality care. 
So Mike, how can we start to stratify patient risk in the clinic and why does that matter? I I think that let's start with why it matters. It matters because we know that the downstream effect costs of people that transition into high levels of pain and high levels of disability is massive. So if we can identify the people that are going to end up being high healthcare users and having high levels of disability and life impact from their pain as early as possible, then we can give them as much care as we need and prevent those downstream effects as much as possible. So I think that's the goal behind risk stratification is efficiency in the way we're delivering care and tertiary prevention of these more chronic issues. How we do that is tricky. I think that there's basically some questionnaires out there that are designed around that very idea of how do we ask questions across lots of different domains that give us the best idea of whether this patient fits a low-risk category, in other words, largely self-resolving, will do well on their own with minimal intervention, or on the end of the spectrum, a high-risk category, meaning they need lots of contact, potentially multiple disciplines, in an effort to stop that downstream ramification. So I'd love to know some of the factors that go into what would make somebody a high healthcare user. What are some of the things that you are asking about in PhysioTree? What are some of the criteria that you use to stratify people? Yeah, so as you can imagine, there's a lot of different categories. A few have panned out to be a little bit more valuable than others. We want to ask about their perceptions of pain and pain catastrophizing. We want to ask about how much pain they're in. We know that can be predictive. So if you're saying you're in a 9 out of 10 pain as an acute low back pain sufferer versus a 5 out of 10, we know there are correlative qualities with long-term disability. The more intense your pain is, we ask about compensability. So we know that people that are getting workers' comp claims and time off work have a lower likelihood of improving quickly. And then other psychosocial and lifestyle questions, like questions about fear and just overall exercise questions and stuff like that seem to be our best way to start to loosely categorize. Do you think we can do it without an app? Not in the context you're talking about, but do you think that as clinicians, we could be doing this kind of, I guess I'm saying on our own without a questionnaire or just by going through the evaluation? Yes, that's the gut check method, right? Of, well, I've met with this patient, I've chatted with them, I understand their perspective and where they're coming from. And now, if you ask me to put them into a category, can I do that? And I think that, yes, I think we probably already do that without necessarily even really thinking that we're doing that. The problem with that is that it's harder to study because it's less clearly delineated. So when it comes to researching these things, we want to be able to say, yes, a score of zero to three puts them in low risk, a score of four through seven puts them in medium risk, and a score of eight to 10 puts them in high risk. But I think that in a non-nominal way, just in the normal clinical interaction, we're doing those things automatically. And you're probably doing it with your patients. You think, wow, this patient needs high touch. Let's recommend more frequency of visits. Let's check in with them electronically a little bit more versus the patient. You can tell right away that they're there for some advice and some consultation, but they're going to take the baton and run with it. And you feel a lot more comfortable about less visit frequency and less check-ins. How do you see this being used in clinical practice moving forward? What would your ideal be in a perfect world if you could get this app out there? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that when we think about the groups that really stand to benefit from improvement in healthcare value, quality versus cost, and and changing that relationship meaningfully, we're talking about employers 
because they're forking over a lot of the healthcare bill for their employees. So they're very interested in keeping things cost effective. And then insurance companies. So insurance companies are also very interested in keeping things cheap as possible, but high value. So I think that what we're starting to think about for PhysioTree, how do we reach those groups and provide a nice pitch for, hey, this is something that could help streamline the way you're interacting with this high volume of patients that are your low back pain patients. And we know that 5 to 10% of them are going to go down the road and spend a ton of time and money and disability and time off work, et cetera. How do you accurately identify those? I could see this being extremely useful as well with primary care docs. It's a triage and trying to direct people to the right place. There are so many people that I think we all see that you're thinking, yeah, you probably didn't really need too much PT or God, why didn't you come in sooner? So I, I see it being really a boon for primary care as well. Yes, absolutely. And even especially for organizations like HMOs that have their own full loop built in, they're really interested in getting people to the right place as quickly as possible. So I think that to your point, yes. It's exciting to see PTs making this where we get to shape the way that the risk stratification is happening and set out the patient language. Because as we've referenced in a couple other episodes, sometimes what patients have heard about their condition gets in the way of what we do. The power of language is so important. And Mike, you're someone that I look up to when it comes to patient education. I think you're so deliberate in choosing the language that you choose and also incorporating evidence into the language that you choose. I never get the impression that you're placating or trivializing something, but that you can sit in this space between here's what we think will happen from the evidence and then here's where you are. How do we move forward with all that information? And you've spoken a lot about motivational interviewing. So I'm curious, how did you get into that? How did you figure out that maybe you wanted to do more of that in your own practice? First off, thank you. I appreciate you saying all of that. I, I think that I got to this point, and by no means am I an expert, but just through failing a lot, <laughs> honestly, and saying things wrong and thinking back and thinking, how could I have done that better and connected with this patient in a way that is accurate, but also instilling positive beliefs about the future. So I think that I found motivational interviewing in my quest to add some more structure to my communication skills. Because I think that communication is perceived as this soft skill that isn't trained the way that we train our more technical skills. We train exercise and exercise prescription and manual therapy techniques and differential diagnoses, thought processes a lot. And then we train how we're interacting with the patients and how we're delivering our message very little. And I know you both agree already, but I think that the way we interact with our patients and communicating with them might be the most important aspect of our job. And yet it's the one that we train the least typically. So I think that I found motivational interviewing just because I was looking for more ways to add a framework to what I was doing with my patients and getting better at communicating. And what resources did you use to learn more about this? Well, I started with Google. But <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, well, I think that that took me to a book or two on motivational interviewing and reading a little bit through those. And then British Medical Journal had a free one-hour Con Ed course on motivational interviewing. So I took that. And then there's a course on MedBridge and I took that. And then I found there's someone in the Bay Area that teaches a three-day workshop on motivational interviewing. So I took that. And then I was able to take my limited knowledge and incorporate it into some of the orthopedic residency curriculum at Agile. So I got to teach it a little bit. 
So just an evolving process for me. Excellent. I just have to share a little side note here. So when I was in the residency last year in women's health, we were taking a lot of the orthopedic courses with the orthopedic residents. And I was really excited about all of the courses, but I will say I was looking forward to upper extremity the least. <laughs> just saying, you know, as a pelvic floor PT, I feel like that was my area of least comfort. And I was like, oh my God, okay, I got to learn about the shoulder, got to bust out all my special tests. And I got to the course that you taught on that. And I was, it was so different than what I expected. We learned about motivational interviewing and how all the special tests that we know are not super reliable or valid. And I felt like you put the shoulder, which is an area of great fear for me, into such a streamlined approach and incorporated the biopsychosocial model so seamlessly into it. I was just amazed. Clearly, that served you well. I was very impressed. Thank you. That's fantastic. It's funny because after the course, we solicit course feedback from all the participants, and it's open to the community as well, not just the residents. And we always get mixed feedback, like why is there three hours of motivational interviewing in this shoulder course? (laughs) Um, So I always have to take it all and balance it out because there's always some people that are like, yeah, you shouldn't put that in here. This is about the shoulder. So I appreciate that you think of it that way. And I will always fight for there being communication components, even if it were in a specific part of the body talking about the elbow or the shoulder or the neck or whatever. I think I was one of the surveys that was like, more please, can we get an entire <laughs> course on this? Come back, Mike. <laughs> yeah, because we don't get enough training. Oh, no. And so, Mike, as a faculty member working with new DPT students, how do you suggest that we incorporate more of this? Or maybe what do you do within the residency or with other young professionals to help encourage their communication skills and their emotional intelligence? Mm, It's such a good question. It's such an important question. It's hard for first-year DPT students because they haven't been out in the clinic yet and they haven't gotten to those subjective evaluations and interactions with patients where they're like, oh man, I feel a little bit lost. And I think that naturally residents who are out there and practicing and failing are a little bit more likely to latch on to the soft skill communication. And I say this remembering back when they did some communication skills when I was in PT school and thinking, oh gosh, this class is just the worst. And it wasn't until I was out there treating patients, talking to them, I was like, oh man, I misjudged the importance of this. So I do think that You want to champion these things early, but I think you want to do it in small, logical doses. And I think you want to have as much of an active learning process as possible. It always starts with the theory. There's this passive learning lecture with the students, but as quickly as possible, we try to transition to role-playing or small group discussion or reflective feedback or all these things that we know are probably more meaningful for long-term learning than just the lecture format. And then hopefully in the residency curriculum, they get not just the didactic components, but they get that high touch interaction in their actual mentoring sessions that isn't just based on their differential and their exercise choice and their manual therapy choice and their home exercise choice, but how they interacted with the patient as well. Mm. What about when someone's not in a residency or if someone's already passed a residency and they want to further develop these skills? What recommendations do you have for them? I think that you can start by reading some materials. There doesn't have to be motivational interviewing. I think it's easy to suggest just motivational interviewing, but there's lots of different tools out there that are able to help you build a better understanding of the communication and interaction process. 
There's a Calgary Cambridge communication guide, which is developed a long time ago. And it's this list of, I think it's 75 item list of key things to designate a good patient interaction. So you can start with even something like that and being introspective with that. I think the first item on that list is something like you are ready for the next patient and you are ready to give them your full attention. That's the first item. And how often are we not quite ready for our next patient and not quite ready to give them <laughs> right. our full attention. I think even just a simple checklist like that, if you don't want to dive into a 200-page motivational interviewing book, could be valuable. So if you're on your own, outside of school, not in a residency, it comes down on to you to be a self-learner, but there are lots of tools out there that can help. Mm-hmm. Excellent. I recently started reading the book, Nonviolent Communication. I'm about halfway through it. It's not written towards physical therapy or healthcare providers, but I think you can get so much out of it, especially for cultivating empathy and what they call compassionate giving towards other people. And I think that's so much of what we have to do is empathize and show up for our patients, interpret some of their statements and try to read between the lines of what they're saying. So from what I've read so far, I would also recommend that. Yeah. And all these just are falling into the big umbrella and the big bucket of patient-centered communication, which gets a lot of soundbite lip service. But I think that all of these are just frameworks and tools for improving your ability to be a patient-centered communicator. What does patient-centered communication mean to you? Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I feel like it gets thrown around a lot. and It's one of those things you know it when you see it, but it's hard to define. Yeah, I think that it's probably something, it's hard not to talk in sound bites when you're talking about these things, but I, I think it's something like patient-centered communication incorporates individuals' unique context, knowledge, needs, goals, values into a shared decision-making partnership. And that's a lot to unpack in one sentence, but I think that at the core is what patient-centered communication is. It's taking in and appreciating their unique story and then working to build a partnership, not a dictatorial situation, but a let's work together on this partnership. I recall from the course too, one of the things that you had said that stuck with me a lot was the length of your subjective is just as important as the length of your objective measurements within the context of an exam. And that really speaks to this whole understanding the patient's story, understanding what their goals and values are, because I think we tend to gloss over all of that in favor of a million tests, at least in the PT world. And so that really stuck with me. And I'd love for you to speak a little bit more about your subjective exam. Sure. I think that we know from some level of research that the more veteran clinician spends more time on their subjective exam and less time on their objective exam. Now, part of that you can argue is because they have better pattern-driven reasoning and they don't need as much data in their objective exam. They already know what they're looking for and they can get there faster. But I think the other piece that you can argue is that they know that it probably is more efficient to spend more time upfront talking, getting to know the patient and building a rapport with them because it pays huge dividends right away. What's taught in school is this tick box communication, right? Which is I have this list of 10 things that I need to know. I need to know the 24-hour pain pattern. I need to know what activities make it worse, what activities make it better, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's important when you're learning to have that structure. But I think what we want to get clinicians to is moving away from that, moving to a little bit more free-flowing, a little bit more open 
communication style that allows the patient to direct it, not take it away and run with it, because we know that a patient can sometimes (laughs) do that. But I think that being a little less tick box in our communication strategies and a little bit more fluid is something that takes a lot of time and a lot of practice, but that's much more patient-centered than saying, okay, and now I need to ask you about your medication history, and now I need to ask you about your other experiences with PT. The area that that really resonates with me is in regards to the patient's goals, especially. Monica and I have talked a lot about goal setting and how important that is. And that's something that I had treated as a checkbox up until residency. What are your goals? I want my pain to decrease. Cool. Moving on. And it's been really telling and helpful to probe deeper into that and say, okay, what would you like to achieve with PT? What would you want to be able to do if you didn't have this pain? What are you limited in right now? And then you can get to the root of it, which is, I want to be able to lift up my grandson. I want to be able to go running or whatever it is. But that's an understanding of the patient that you didn't have if you had just gone through and checked that box. So I love that checkbox analogy. Yeah. And what's interesting is that I think in a lot of patient interviews, you'll know their goals before you have to ask that explicit question. And I Mm -hmm. think that if you can get towards the end or even two thirds of the way in and say, it sounds like if we could get these things done in our time together, that would be really meaningful to you. And if you can tell them their goals and have them nod along and be like, yes, that's, I mean, what a way to build buy-in, what a way to build Mm. rapport for you to say, it sounds like if we could get you lifting your grandson and getting back outside running and throwing the ball with him, that would be really meaningful outcome here. And then saying, yes, Sam, that's exactly what I want. Then man, now they're on your team and bought in, right? Totally. That's a great way to wrap it up. I like that. I'm going to put that in my back pocket. I usually do not do that. Let me say that. So that's pretty cool. So what about when you have a patient who, let's say, is catastrophizing a lot and they're in front of you in their full panic, ruminating, they're repeating the same sentences again. You get the image, right? Sure. So how do you start to work with that person from a philosophy, I'll say, but also maybe how do you choose your language differently? What are some of the corrections that you might make for someone who shows up like that? I'm picturing automatically the most difficult patient when you say that. I think that with these things, you you have to start by trying to figure out what their belief system is that's driving that catastrophization, right? Because there are things in a patient like that that they believe to be inherently true that are driving those emotions and some of those thought processes. So I think the more you can understand them, the more you can address them. So it's tempting to want to just launch into a spiel or your rehearsed dialogue about, hey, the stuff that's on your MRI, that's like wrinkles on the inside of your body and these things are on. It's tempting to just launch into that and start giving them that information right away. But I think that more important is really trying to do your best to pick at and uncover why exactly they're feeling this way, why exactly they're having this fear or catastrophization, etc. And then I think you can give more targeted advice, offer information, offer a new way to think about something, tell a story about a previous patient, something like that, that's going to start to work towards that specific or specific things that they're dealing with or that are fueling that thought process, if that makes sense. And in my experience, when those patients show up, maybe I've asked those questions and I learned that they're worried about their knee because both of their parents needed to have knee replacements. And so that's actually what's driving their underlying concern. And so I thought, man, I got that connection. I talked over it with them. I find though that 
their fear and catastrophizing may take quite a while before it dies down to a lower level. Even though they come back into the second and third session, they've still got some level of that or they are catastrophizing about a new pain. So they'll be like, yeah, my knee's better, but oh my God, I, you know, my ankle just popped and it's been hurting for two days. And what do you think that means? I guess I'm throwing it out there to say, is that your experience? Do you think that's just part of the process or is there some way that I could improve my communication? I'm tempted to be sarcastic and say, no, I'd never have patients come back with anxiety after I'm done talking. <laughs> um, yes, absolutely. That's my experience. But of course, we can be better. Of course, you can be better. And of course, I can be better at the way we're talking to patients. And of course, we also have to be nice to ourselves and know that some patients, even if you do your absolute best and you say it just right and perfectly, are still going to be slow or not change at all. And I think we have to be okay with that. And that example of you've connected their catastrophization with their parents' knee replacement, and now they're worried about it, I think, what's the next question after that? Because we want to say, that's not going to be you, and we want to give that reassurance. But I think the, the next question is probably, what's your understanding of what it's going to take to avoid a knee replacement, right? What do they think they're going to need to do? What's their role in avoiding a knee replacement? And I doubt that the mm -hmm. answer is, there's nothing I can do. It's over. I'm just a ticking time bomb. I think their answer is going to be, well, I'm not sure, which opens the door for you to start giving them some information, or they're going to have some preconceived ideas, maybe some of which are correct, which would be great, maybe some of which are incorrect, which is also very likely. And I think that that's what I mean by figuring out where they're at, is figuring out what's their current understanding of what's going on, so I can start to tie that to my education and my updated information or myth debunking or whatever it is that we're going to be talking about. I would love to know some of the questions that you might ask to probe deeper into their belief system. Do you have any questions that are go-tos for you or any questions that you find helpful to unearth some of these beliefs? Yeah, yeah, for sure. One of the models that is out there is this, I think it was around fear avoidance, but it's a model more about belief systems. And it's this identity model, cause, consequence, control, timeline. These are things that patients already have inherent beliefs about with their injuries usually, not always, but usually. And I think that trying to fill out those areas for yourself helps you paint a better picture for your patient. Identity would be what is their current understanding of their pain, right? Do they have a diagnosis? Do they understand that diagnosis? It's shocking how little people understand about the diagnosis they were already given, right? Even something as simple and as ubiquitous as arthritis, people have wild misconceptions about what that is. So I think that it's Picking away, again, picking away at that and really drilling into that is where I start. What's your diagnosis? Well, I have knee arthritis. So what's your understanding of knee arthritis, <laughs> right? And really trying to get them to talk about what it is. And more often than not, you'll elicit some misconceived notions and incorrect beliefs. I believe that arthritis is me having worn my knee out over time. And that's, that's wrong, but that's an important thing for you to know as the clinician so that you can address it later or start addressing that belief right away. And then the rest of them just follow that similar ideology. So what do they think the cause of their knee arthritis? They think that it's because they ran too much when they were a kid. That's probably incorrect as well, but it's important for you to know that because it gives you information about what they think about the cause of their arthritis. They think that it is because I have used my knee too much, that I've run the tire tread down too much on my knee. And if that's your patient's belief system about their knee, you're going to have a real tough time convincing them to exercise. 
right? <laughs> which we know is yeah. like the primary intervention for knee arthritis. So you're going to have to change that belief if you want to get them on board with your exercise plan. Mm, okay. So tell us how to change their beliefs, Mike. <laughs> That's the golden question, right? <laughs> Before that, I think the question is, how do you not try to correct them all totally. the time? guilty. Because it's so tempting to think, oh, you have a wrong belief. Therefore, if I just tell you the right thing, you will now do the right thing. Yeah. I think that in the subjective or especially before you've gone into your objective exam or you're in your plan of care and shared decision-making component, the subjective is you're probably inputting very little. I think you're just collecting that information. I'm not saying there aren't exceptions to that where you can jump in and start talking about things sooner rather than later, but more often than not, you're just gathering info during that session. And yes, that is a tenant of motivational interviewing as well, to resist that urge <laughs> to jump in and say, well, actually, that's not what our arthritis is, but we can talk more about that later. That is very tempting, but we know it's pretty ineffective and it gets you off on the wrong foot really quickly with patients when you jump in to correct or fix things that they've said. So yes, you have to resist that urge. I find myself having to resist it all the time. Patients sort of say, hey, I'm here because my neck hurts and I know it's because of my posture. And it's really tempting to say, posture is just one piece of many pieces that could be affecting your neck. But I think fighting that urge is really important. Yeah. That's one of the things that's beautiful about motivational interviewing in that you are not eliciting that inherent resistance to being told what to do and instead allowing the patient to invite you into that space so that you are going to get a much better connection and result from the information that you're giving them instead of just telling them you're wrong, I'm right, here's the information. Because nobody wants that, everyone resists it. People just inherently resist being told what to do. That's exactly right. I think that if you want to have as big of an impact on your patients or elicit as much change in your patients, then the power there is formed in the context of your relationship. And if you can have a powerful relationship, that gives you your best chance of connecting with them, getting through to them, and getting them to be either willing to change or willing to think about something differently. That comes from relationship context. Definitely. This makes me think of the term patient compliance. Monica and I... <laughs> Do not like the, the term patient compliance. We don't believe in <laughs> compliance. So we think it's a dirty word. Yes. So I would love to hear your thoughts about how that relates. Gosh, before I do, I want to know why you don't like compliance. I'm, can I guess and imagine that it's because it reinforces this idea that we are prescribers of things and patients are diligently supposed to follow our prescription and it's this fixing, fixy relationship? Is that? Pretty much. Oh, yep. My thousand percent. Yep. You nailed yep. it. Nailed it. <laughs> nailed it. Exactly. And compliance, I think also, maybe you already said this, but compliance implies that the patient has to do what you tell them to do. And you are right and they are wrong. So I think for me, it goes beyond just fixing because sometimes my recommendations aren't actually great. I'd like to think they are, but there's plenty of times where a patient has come up with do you think that this would be better for me? And I'm like, yeah, if you could go out and do that instead, that sounds awesome. You know, I'm limited perhaps in what I can imagine for them versus what they can imagine for themselves. And I also do not like the responsibility of thinking that I have to convince them. And if they choose not to do it, then they're the bad person. I'd like to see the good in people. And to your point, think, I don't know that this person doesn't want to get better. And so they just decided to be non-compliant. I think they probably have some beliefs 
that are getting in the way of their ability to connect with what this is or they don't understand it. Maybe I didn't explain it in a way that made sense and tied back to what's meaningful to them or life got in the way and maybe they have a hard time expressing that to me. Maybe they are under a lot more stress than originally I thought and so they don't have the mental capacity to commit to this program. So for all of those reasons. Yes, that is a very healthy perspective, I think. It's the quote-unquote the myth of the unmotivated patient. It's easy to say they're just not motivated to get better or get their knee better, and that implies there's some degree of you don't understand their story. You get to ditch your responsibility and put it on them and say they didn't do enough and they don't care, but if you cared in my mind and listened enough, then you would at least have an understanding of why this wasn't the right time for them to participate in whatever you're doing, which I don't think is discussed enough. I always heard of referring out, but never just realizing that people aren't going to be ready sometimes and they do have too much going on and this isn't as important to them as I think it is or their doctor thought it was and why drag each other along when we don't have to go that far. But if you're not compliant, then I get to be mad at you and you're the bad guy and I'm still right. Blaming and shaming. (laughs) That's all it is, right? Yeah. It's not leaving any room for humanity. Hmm. But we did have a question for you before I went off on my soapbox. (laughs) And that was, how do you work with patients to facilitate better motivation and participation? I think that it all falls into that big category of shared decision-making and coming up with a shared plan together. I agree with you. The second it becomes this prescriptive thing where here's what I'm going to have you do. I'm going to have you do these exercises this many times a day at this intensity. It's less likely to be something that the patient is going to participate in. But I think if you approach it from the, here are some things that we know can help. How do we fit these in? Right? What's a logical amount? What is the timing that can work for you? Are you okay with this plan? You're going to get their permission. And I think it starts there. And I think that's more of a walking side by side with your patient rather than here's the script that I'm going to hand you with exactly what I want you to do on it. So I think just having that mindset shift a little bit of collaboration is so much more meaningful than this idea of, hey, I'm the authority here and I'm going to give you exactly what needs to be done. What are your thoughts on the amount that we're prescribing to people in regards to (laughs) interventions or exercises? I feel like you remember this from the course. I do. I'm bleeding you. Sorry. (laughs) No, it's okay. I feel like this is a, a soapbox for me frequently. Yeah, I think that we prescribe way too much exercise in those cases. And even in my own team at Agile, when looking at chart reviews, I frequently see four, five, six, seven exercises. We look at people's MedBridge home exercise programs, we see six, seven, eight, nine, ten exercises. And I think that more often than not is way too much. And it falls into this kitchen sink method of I'm just throwing everything at them. So at the, the shoulder course that I teach, we talk about the patient that gets internal rotation, external rotation, eyes, T's, Y's, lower trap exercise. They got this huge list of shoulder stuff, more than any bodybuilder would ever do for their shoulders. And we're giving it to our our middle-aged patient with shoulder pain. So yes, I think that we overprescribe a lot more often than not. We know that one to two, maybe three max exercises are when we start to rapidly see patient compliance adherence. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when we start to see patient willingness to participate in your shared program. 
decrease. <laughs> um, and the best studies there, I think, are out of arthritis patients. And what we know is that one to two exercises with a common goal and a common focus are the most likely to be adhered to. So, hey, let's work on glute strength, core strength, knee flexibility, hip flexibility, all those things. Now you've gotten lots of different threads and it's easy to lose a patient when you have that many threads. But hey, we're working on quad strength. That's the thing. We're going to really hammer that with these two exercises. Let's dial in the intensity and the volume appropriately. I think when we do that, we're a lot more likely to see patients participate in our programs. Excellent. I really like the idea of dialing in the intensity too. One of the things that I know that I'm guilty of is, first of all, prescribing too many exercises. I know this. And then the second thing is also not spending the time to go through every single exercise that you prescribe to somebody with the exact number of reps and sets that you're prescribing. So for example, I might watch them do the first set and say, okay, second set, do it home. But I think that when you have people go through the intensity with you, you can dial it in and you can really watch for deviations in form, things like that, that you wouldn't necessarily be able to do. And then the patient's gone through the process with you, with somebody that they trust, it's just a different interaction. So I think that having that focus on those two and spending your time is really huge. And I, I know that's something that I'm continually trying to remind myself of. Yeah, no, absolutely. And to that point, I think that we often err on the side of underdosing intensity. It's really easy to prescribe three sets of 12 with the green TheraBand, which if someone's in a lot of pain or has a lot of irritability might be appropriate. But if they're trying to actually create tissue change and create adaptation, we know that you need to be exercising in an intensity that is probably outside your comfort zone, unless you're very comfortable with that. And if you're willing to go through the full three or four or five sets or whatever you're having your patient do, you can talk them through that process. You can talk them through what they're feeling. It's a lot of patients don't know what it's like to push outside their comfort zone when it comes to exercise intensity. So making sure you're there the first time they do it, or especially in this area that they might be worried about or that there's pain, I think has a lot of value. Yeah, I think being able to coach them through how they feel is the most important part of watching my patients do exercise, whereas before it was getting their form perfect and I'm recognizing that form that's pretty good is good enough. And what's more important is how they're reacting to what's happening. If they hear clicking in their knee when they do squats, it doesn't really matter that I think squats are great and their squats look good if to them clicking is a bad thing. So I think it's being present with our patients. Like part of being patient-centered is being focused on them. Like you said, are you there and are you going to give it 100%? Yeah, I really like that. And that's exactly right. It's figuring out where they're at, how they're feeling about this exercise and talking them through it, coaching them through it. That's our role. The PT role redefined. <laughs> <laughs> That's been a very common thread with people we've brought on, which is probably by design. But it is cool, I think, for me to be five years out of PT school and hearing these conversations because I wasn't listening for it or I wasn't around it earlier on in my career. So it is very liberating to get these new takes and new perspective. It's wonderful. It's so exciting. Even just listening to your last episode on communication and language is like... Yes, makes me feel good. This is exactly what we all should be talking about more, but it doesn't get talked about enough. And I, at least in my experience teaching, whether it's residents or first-year PT students, people are really hungry to, to learn more about talking. 
learn more about communication. And especially if you can move away from abstract concepts and start talking about concrete ways of explaining things to patients or talking with patients, I think it usually goes over really well. People really want to be better at communication. And the more we talk about it and debate about it and reflect on it, the better we all are for it. That's something that um, I recall, I think in school, taking some courses with you as well. It's just, it's been really cool to see people with more of this focus get integrated into PT curricula. Yeah. And it's interesting. There's a project that Monica and I and uh, other team members have worked on where we're trying to help primary care physicians with their language too. And we presented on one part of this topic yesterday. And I I didn't know what the PCP interest was going to be, whether they were going to want to learn more special tests or whether they were going to want to ask more about the physical exam flow. And I was really happy to see that they wanted more communication skill and they wanted more information. Hey, how do we talk patients down from thinking that their low back pain is the end of the world or that something is seriously wrong? They really are hungry for that knowledge and those skills. And I think, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, it is. And how do you talk someone down, Mike? Just tell them, don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, of course not. I think that to our point earlier, it's about figuring out where they're at, where their head is at, why they think it's the end of the world, and then starting there. So starting with their perspective and working from that is where it has to be. It's so easy to start from our perspective and our lens. Our lens is what we're used to because we look through it all the time. So it's really tough to come at it from the patient's point of view, but that's where you start to make meaningful connection and be able to give them advice or update their education and have it actually stick or have them listen to you. Yeah, it's about listening to your patients. And like you said several times this episode, I want to emphasize getting their perspective. Your perspective told to them is not patient education. It's getting their perspective. (laughs) And tailoring it and mixing it with what you know about evidence and what has helped other people, that's what I think creates truly meaningful patient education. And anyone can read a flyer about how MRIs are not the best way to diagnose your pain, but that flyer doesn't speak to that person. There's no connection there. And I think As therapists, we get to build that connection when we listen to them, when we empathize with them, when we share a story of someone similar or let them know what's worked for other people. They're hungry for hope. I think we can infuse so much hope when we listen and and truly understand. And just listening is therapeutic. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that motivational interviewing says that you know their perspective when you can repeat it back to them, when you can reflect it back to them and have them agree with you. And of course, it's okay to be wrong because they can correct you or amplify whatever you're saying. But I think that there's only one way to know if you have their perspective correct. And that's to say, let me make sure I understand your perspective. (laughs) Repeat it to them and let them say, yep, you got it. That's the only way to really know. And I think when we talk about motivational interviewing and the, the value of summary statements or reflective statements, that's what we're getting at is that's the only way to really show empathy is to say, let me reflect back what I'm understanding from your perspective and have them say, that's exactly right. And it's incredible how there's a sense of relief that washes over them when you get that emotion correct. I think we've all seen that when we summarize that statement and the person goes, yes. It's like somebody finally heard their fear, their worry, their emotions about whatever injury they have. So I think that's a really cool and powerful thing for understanding their story from a perspective of wanting to get them better but also from a perspective of just wanting to develop rapport with your patient and get that connection there with them. 
Absolutely. It's astonishing how many patients don't actually have their chief complaint heard, their chief concern heard. Mm. And if you can repeat it back to them, which isn't that, I know that when we document, we put chief complaint, shoulder pain, but I think that chances are that their chief complaint is something different that's surrounding that shoulder pain. And if you can get it right and have the exact sound you hear, yes, that's exactly what I'm here to talk about. And that's exactly what my concern is. Mike, it's been a pleasure to talk about patient-centered care with you. We're so excited that you came on. And the final part of our podcast that we do with every guest is a lightning round. Uh (laughs) So yes, we are going to take you through. First question, what is your favorite drink at the moment? Favorite drink at the moment is a gin martini. Next question is, what is the best book you've read lately? Best book I've read lately, Leonard and Hungry Paul. What's that about? It's a book my mom gave me a few months ago. It's just this character-driven book, very not plot-focused and very character-focused, but it was a feel-good book that I just thoroughly enjoyed, and I just finished reading it, so it was top of mind for lightning round. (laughs) Awesome. What is the first thing you do in a challenging situation? Take a deep breath. (laughs) (laughs) If you weren't a PT, what would you do for work? Good question. Wow. I don't know. I feel like I would still want to be in a human-focused profession. So something along those lines, maybe still in healthcare, maybe something in education, I think would probably be steered towards teacher or, you know, professor for that answer. All right. Excellent. Professor Nelson. (laughs) That is what I'm going to call you at work. Oh, no, don't. New nickname. (laughs) How do you define being a conscious clinician? That's the ultimate question for this podcast, right? I think that being a conscious clinician is one that puts and sees patient-centered care as the centerpiece for everything else that they do. Excellent. So, Mike, where can people find you if they want to get in contact after this episode? Oh, gosh. I will happily put a link to my email. I will happily put a link to my LinkedIn, which I begrudgingly have and check intermittently. So you're welcome to message me on there, but email is best. All right. Awesome. We will include those references in our show notes. And as always, stay conscious. We'll see you next week. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let's keep the conversation going on Instagram at The Conscious Clinician and Facebook backslash The Conscious Clinician. Links are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and write a review for the podcast to grow our community. Stay conscious, everyone.